This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Jared Halverson teaches at the University of Utah Institute of Religion for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Originally from Southern California, he served a two-year mission in Puerto Rico and later graduated with a BA in history and an MA in religious education from Brigham Young University. He has taught religious education courses at the high school and college level since 1998 has taught in the religion department at BYU, and has been a featured speaker in both devotional and academic settings from coast to coast. Prior to his current assignment, he spent eight years directing the seminary and institute programs in Nashville, Tennessee. While in Nashville, he earned a second master's degree in American religious history at Vanderbilt University, where he is currently completing a doctorate in the same subject, focusing on anti-religious rhetoric. He was frequently involved with interfaith dialogue in the Nashville area, and that work has continued in Salt Lake, where he has hosted evangelical student groups from across the country. In 1999, he married the former Emily Stoddard in the San Diego Temple, and they have five children ranging in age from 19 to 11, and they live in Cedar Hills, Utah. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland. And I'm honestly so happy to have Jared Halverson with me tonight. Thanks so much, Jared, for being here with me. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you, Tara. And something that I didn't mention in that impressive bio (laughs) is that Jared actually has a thriving YouTube channel called Unshaken, where he goes over the Come Follow Me lesson, like verse by verse each week. It's awesome. So I'd highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I'll leave uh, some bit about that in the show notes if you're interested. Um, But as I mentioned in your bio, you are completing a doctorate in American religious history. How has studying other faith traditions changed the way you view the beliefs of others and how you view your own beliefs? That's a great question. I've absolutely loved my time at Divinity School and being surrounded by people who love the gospel as they see it, uh, love religion, are open-minded enough to want to talk about it, but also committed enough to their faith that it's not a, it, this is not a covert missionary operation by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> uh, but really an opportunity to just see the goodness that exists everywhere, to understand the generosity of our Father in heaven, to, to give his children wherever they may be, truth and light and love and goodness. Uh, Christopher Stendhal was the Harvard Divinity School Dean and uh, a Lutheran Bishop of Stockholm, Sweden. And he coined the phrase, holy envy, where you just have this space in you to to be almost jealous of the good things that you see in other faiths. And I've been blessed with a a healthy dose of holy envy since childhood, uh, growing up in a very diverse uh, religious environment in Southern California with friends that were not only very diverse in their beliefs, but also very devout in them. Uh, and so it's been a lifetime of seeing the goodness that exists elsewhere and rejoicing in it, frankly. Uh, I, I don't think we, we, there are a few monopolies that we might have uh, as far as priesthood authority and, and the power of the temple and, and so on. But as far as goodness and truth and beauty and, 
there, there's such an ample supply of that wherever you look. Mm -hmm. And I do love that term, holy envy. There is so much that we can learn from other faith traditions and not to be afraid to look in other places for truth because truth has been scattered throughout the earth and, and we can learn so much from our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Exactly. And even to see it in a, in, from a historical perspective, like, like you said, I've, my uh, emphasis is in American religious history, but to see the broad swath of, of history in, in religious terms and to see how people have been stretching heavenward for millennia and that God has been kindly reaching downward all that time as well. Uh, I'm fascinated by verses like in, in the book of Revelation, where it talks about this woman who represents the church uh, being oh, scattered or, or being shooed off the, the, the stage, so to speak, off into this apostate wilderness. And yet when she's there, the scriptures say that she was nourished there for mm -hmm. time and times and half a time. And just that sense of what we consider the apostasy was still a time where truth was nourished, that the Bible was preserved, that good men and women were giving their lives for the truth as they knew it. And the, the restoration of the gospel would have been very difficult indeed without those kinds of forerunners uh, following light uh, and truth and inspiration from heaven as, as, they, as they experienced it. And so I'm, I came away from my years at Divinity School simultaneously more grateful for the goodness that exists elsewhere and also more and more convinced of the fullness of the gospel uh, as found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I think being open to the goodness that lies elsewhere doesn't mean that we have to dilute our own discipleship or, or come away thinking, uh, being less committed to the gospel. I, I feel more committed than ever at the same time, being more open than ever uh, to the goodness I see and in, in the, the good fruits that are growing in other people's fields. So cool. Now, this is a part actually of our Anchors of Faith series, and today we're going to be talking about uh, acquiring spiritual truth. And I felt like Jared was probably one of the most qualified people I knew to talk about this because you have spent the vast majority of your adult life learning about how to acquire spiritual knowledge. Of course, you've been to divinity school, you have two master's degrees and are getting a doctorate in religious history, which again is impressive. And really for me, I, I'm slightly envious. <laughs> um, I find studying religion so fascinating. But with that said, what did your experience attending divinity school teach you about the process of acquiring spiritual knowledge? Oh, it's, I'm still in, in the process of acquiring it myself. And I'm grateful that that's a, a lifelong and honestly an eternal process. I've often come back to the verse in section eight of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says that he speaks to the mind and to the heart and that that is the spirit of revelation. It's interesting to study religion academically because the discipline of academia is such that you kind of have to bracket out uh, personal spiritual experience. Uh, it's not, you can't put your testimony in a footnote with a reference. And so in fact, I remember reading a book by a, a sociologist of religion whom I really respect, but as he was trying to understand religion from a sociological perspective, he said that he would be addressing the topic 
with a degree of what he called methodological atheism, uh, which was his way of saying, I have to bracket out my faith because that's, uh, you know, the spiritual side of things and the experiences I've had with heaven isn't something that you can really measure and, and study empirically. And he actually got so much pushback from his methodological atheism that he wrote another book later in his career, just to clarify to people, I'm, I was a methodological atheist, but not an atheist myself. I am a believer. Uh, but how do you approach the subject of religion purely philosophically or so sociologically or psychologically? And I think in some ways that's the detriment of academic study, the academic study of religion, because you've essentially bracketed out the one thing that you're actually trying to discover. I always felt this irony uh, of trying to, to study something that it's almost like looking into the sun and you think, well, that's what I want to see. That's what I'm trying to discover and, and analyze, but I'm, I, I'm not allowed to actually look at it at, at my object of, of observation. Uh, I was, I'm fascinated by the, that mental approach, the academic approach. I think it, it, brings us to a great understanding of a lot of things. And there are some incredible tools that scholarship can provide for that search for truth. But as far as acquiring spiritual knowledge, to emphasize the spiritual means it has to be experiential and not just academic, that it can't be some kind of uh, distance learning. It has to be a hands-on experience with heaven. And, and absent that, you'll never fully understand what it is that you're trying to make sense of. And so the heart has to be a part of, a part of things as well. Uh, particularly as I've, because my emphasis is in anti-religious rhetoric, I study a lot of the things that people have said against faith uh, throughout history. And, and that can be taxing sometimes uh, or, or heavy on the soul when you're spending your time surrounded by skeptics and people trying to knock the legs out from under faith. Uh, and yet I'm amazed at how much of that came from, well, I mean, the technical term is epistemology. You know, how do we know what we say that we know? And when the epistemological model in, in science is one of pure observation and empirical study and so on, without the realm of the experiential, then no wonder you're missing something. And so, so much of doubt throughout history has come, the way I describe it is in the head and heart tug of war, the head got so much respect through the enlightenment. We, we got, science was able to discover so many things and answer so many questions that we started to believe that science could answer them all. Or technology has solved so many problems, we start to assume that technology can solve them all. And so we end up taking eggs out of faith's basket and putting them in science's basket instead, or we take them out of the heart and into the head and think that is going to be sufficient. And it really isn't. And so much of, of doubt on, on kind of an institutional level has come because the basket dropped and the eggs broke and people were scrambling to try to remember what faith felt like because they almost fooled themselves into believing that pure reason alone would be enough to, to measure and weigh and prove the truth of Christianity uh, when it, that's impossible without, without the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and so as, as far as my own academic study, like I said, I'm grateful for it. The, it's funny, some have asked me, how on earth did you do full-time doctoral work and full-time 
church work uh, as, a, as the Institute Director in Nashville at the same time. And I remember thinking, well, it was insane. I'll give you that. But <laughs> I'm so grateful that I had to do both because as, as school was pulling my head into the clouds, teaching the gospel every day was keeping my feet on the ground. And to be able to have both of those experiences simultaneously, I saw how the one would inform the other and the other would sanctify the first. And, and it was such a blessing to be able to have that. that I, I was always struck by a statement that St. That Augustine said about plundering the riches of Egypt. And what he meant, he was referring to ancient Israel coming out of Egyptian bondage on their way to the promised land under Moses. And they were told to ask their Egyptian masters for all as much gold and jewelry as they could, as they could carry. And the, by then the Egyptians were just hoping to escape the plagues with their lives. And so it was easy for them to part with their, with their gold. And, and, and so that was this idea of plundering the riches of Egypt. And then you know, why do these Israelites need the gold? Well, that's what they're going to use to build the, to make the tabernacle implements, the table of showbread and the incense altar and so on for the tabernacle. And then later for the temple of Solomon. And Augustine was using that analogy to describe education. He was a very well-educated pagan before he became an equally well-educated Christian. And, and he just saw the value of what he had learned and he felt, I can use that to build God's kingdom. I can use my mind to follow my heart and take the blessings that I've learned from an academic study and consecrate them to the Lord so that he can do something better with them. And, and I, I see the academic study of religion along those same lines and was so grateful to have been able to go to a place where religion was taken seriously, but also academically and to really feel that I plundered the best that Egypt had to offer. And then you have a decision to make because the same gold that was meant to be used for temple implements ended up being used for a golden calf first. And sadly, I have some, seen some people who, again, detach the head from the heart and are only pulled to the clouds without feet on gospel ground and end up turning their education. And this is true, not just of religious education, but I mean, graduate school is, specializes in deconstruction and doesn't do much for reconstruction. And so I've seen a lot of good, good people, uh, friends of mine, who have gone and plundered the riches of Egypt and ended up building golden calves instead of tabernacle implements. And so I, I think if, we, have, if our, we do our best to keep our heart pure and, and remind ourselves constantly of why we are studying these things to begin with, and that's to to enrich our experience with Heavenly Father and to deepen our, our understanding of his truths and his ways and to make ourselves more useful in his hands to, to share his love with others, then I think we're, we're on safe ground and we're keeping our eye single to the glory that where it needs to be going. And that's back to God. That concept of separating the head from the heart um, kind of goes along the lines of this thought that I've had so often, I feel like in the last year, which is, the importance of having a desire to believe mm -hmm. uh, because we know that knowledge doesn't change behavior and knowledge won't necessarily cause people to um, want to live in a certain way. And I believe that's why we are meant to live by faith. In Alma 32, we read Alma's well-known discourse on how 
to help our faith grow. And he encourages us to experiment on the word, to exercise a particle of faith. And he even goes so far as to say, if you have, but a desire to believe Mm -hmm. that that can propel you forward. And so my question is what role does our desire to believe play in acquiring spiritual knowledge? Is there anything we can do ourselves or for others to help develop a desire to believe? I guess that's a follow-up question to that. <laughs> oh, they're both they're both wonderful questions, Tara. It's interesting because, because I study anti-religious rhetoric and spend a, a good deal of time with those that are attacking my faith as well as the faith of others, I, I seem to have one foot in each world, uh, the pro-religion and the anti-religion. And so often when I hear questions or or read things, I, I see it from both angles. And I could picture a skeptic taking that question or even almost wanting to take Alma to task. I guess, you know, rewind two chapters. And if Korahor were still around to ask him about that, he'd probably accuse uh, Alma of simply relying on confirmation bias mm-hmm. and say, see, it's only quote unquote true to you because you want it to be. You have this desire to believe. And so you've convinced yourself. This is some kind of... Uh, Oh, self-fulfilling prophecy or, or a self-induced spiritual experience, so to speak. And often when I hear people say that, uh, and I work with people that are in the throes of faith crisis frequently, and often when, they're, when they level those kinds of accusations, I'll often just smile and say, wow, if this is self-induced, I would be inducing all the time because I love the feeling of the spirit. Uh, I, I, and unfortunately, I don't feel it all the time. I, it, I, I'm not just inducing this or I would be doing a lot more. And in fact, for those that are struggling in their faith and do have a desire to believe and aren't receiving or feel like they aren't receiving answers to their questions or confirmation of, of what, they're, what they're seeking, again, that disproves in my mind largely this, this accusation or this sense that it's just confirmation bias and you, it's only true to you because you want it to be. Because again, there's so many people who do want it to be true and yet have not yet uh, found that confirmation to their satisfaction. Let, let me put on the other hat and see this from a faithful perspective. And that desire to believe, I think so often you see the fruits of faith and you see their goodness. That's another thing that, thing that Alma is talking about in that chapter and, and surrounding chapters as well, just to have that fruit, to be planting your own tree of life within you. When you're planting the seed, as he talks about in chapter 32, by the end, you realize what kind of seed it was. And it's to, to have your own tree of life uh, and to be able to have that blessing. No wonder that's the starting point. I think often you see the goodness of people of faith around you, whether in our church or in, in others. And just this, again, holy envy for them where it's how did they get to that point and how are they so calm amidst the storm and how are they so grounded in things and uh, so outside of themselves there's just a a peace to them there's a depth to them there's a goodness to them that that we we desire I, i think that's what paul is building off when he speaks of coveting the best gifts and seeking them earnestly and and that desire to be i think is the divinity inside us wanting to to stand to its full stature, to, uh, to live up to the measure of its creation as daughters and sons of, of loving heavenly parents. And, and that desire, I remember a conversation I had with a student that was really struggling and she'd come in and just said, you know, I, 
I don't know about anything. I don't know about my faith anymore. She grew up in the church, uh, solid family, but said, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I believe anything anymore. And, and then she said, but I don't even know if I want to. I, I'm feeling so lazy that I don't know if I want to know the church is true. And at the same time, I'm too lazy to even leave it. So am I just going to kind of coast and kind of blah, just be here and, and be a member in, in name only perhaps? And, and we went to Alma 32 together and we talked about that, that particle of faith and that desire to believe that's the beginning point, as you pointed out. And, and it was interesting because she was, again, wonderful young woman, very honest with herself and with me and said, what if, if even that feels like too much? Is there anything smaller than a particle of faith? Is there like a, is that the molecule? Is there, is there an atom of faith? Is there an electron, a quark of faith? I and mean, how, how, how tiny can we actually get to start with something? And I, I asked her about some of her interests. I had gotten to know her a bit over the semester and, and knew that she was an outdoors woman and loved those kind of adventurous things. And, and I said, you'd like to mountain bike, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, think about the gears on your mountain bike. And when you're trying to climb the mountain, what gear are you typically in? And we just talked about finding the lowest possible gear where it doesn't take much effort to at least begin to feel some momentum build. And to start from zero, we don't go from zero to 60 in a bike going uphill, but to just go from zero to one mile an hour, to just start something uh, with as easy a gear as we, as we could possibly find. And, and then from there, once we have a little bit of momentum, to shift up and not to leave it there and then to build some more momentum and gain some additional speed and then work our way through the gears uh, until we're really making progress. And, and I mentioned to her or asked her, what is your lowest gear spiritually speaking? Is there anything that you do that requires almost no effort at all? And yet you start to feel something stirring within some sense of transcendence that of something above you or bigger than you. And she talked about nature, which fit her lifestyle beautifully. And I just said, what, how, isn't it generous of God to surround you with your first and lowest gear? And the next time, and I encouraged her next time you're out there, recognize that there is momentum as small as it might be and see if you can shift upward rather than just enjoying nature, turn that enjoyment into gratitude, for example, and, and try to feel that, try to sense the creator behind the creation. Uh, and just, again, to, almost to brainstorm, what are all these different ways I can feel close to God? And then rank them from easiest to harder and move forward. And with that momentum building, you start to feel these swelling motions, as Alma said. It begins to enlarge the soul. It begins to enlighten the understanding. And as you sense the deliciousness of it, you just want to keep eating. Hmm. Well, I was thinking as a mom that that's perhaps one of the things that I think about most often is how do I help my children mm -hmm. develop a desire to believe? And I think children naturally have an inclination to believe um, but I have a child, <laughs> I will, I will not name them that I wonder about his interest in yeah. the gospel. He's young, but 
I think that would be a very interesting exercise to go through with each of your children and talking to them about developing a desire to believe and what is their lowest gear? Because I think that there will come a time for each of us at some point in our lives where we will have to go back to (laughs) our lowest gear because we are reconstructing because the world will try and take the legs out of our faith. So I, I really like that idea of the lowest gear. And, and I believe that there, that God has provided something for each of us that can propel that desire. And as we start to build momentum, as you said, we can experience the fruit, but eventually it will grow to a point where we are truly being converted. So true. Well, and to, and to trust that Heavenly Father is, is even more anxious, eager and anxious for that to occur for our children than we are that they're his children first and foremost, and that he, I love, I love the reassurance that the Lord gives to Nephi. I think this is in first Nephi 13, as he's watching the, the unfolding of the restoration. And he says twice, I am able to do mine own work. It's like Nephi, I've got this, I've got this. And I think sometimes uh, in our, in our anxiety uh, for our children and for our, our friends and family, loved ones, especially those who may be struggling is just thinking that we have to do it all ourselves and, and not recognizing that the Lord is able to do his own work. And yes, he wants to do it through us. But if we'll simply have an eye to opportunity and a willingness to open our mouths whenever that opportunity presents itself, then the Lord again has promised that he will fill it. Uh, and as we're treasuring up continually the words of life, as we're coming to know as best as possible those that we're trying to influence, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that opportunities present themselves. Uh, I used to play football and, and, and I, as a receiver, I just knew that if I could get open and if I had gained the quarterback's trust, he would find a way to get me the ball. And again, I think if we have an eye to opportunity and if we've gained the Lord's trust by the way we try to le- learn and live his gospel, he'll find a way to put us in a position to influence people uh, positively. I love it. Well, kind of along these same lines, um, I served a mission in England. Oh, wonderful. And you, you and a lot of prophets. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, and I learned on my mission that just because you are a religious person doesn't mean you necessarily have faith or a deep connection with God. I recall a fellow I met on my mission. He was actually a vicar for the Church of England. And he, he was obviously a religious man, but he was surprisingly cynical and without faith. And in fact, it became evident very quickly that he really didn't have faith in God at all. His life and his livelihood was steeped in religious practice, yet lacking in spirituality, lacking a real connection with heaven. So can you define and maybe compare and contrast religiosity versus spirituality and how the two impact our testimony and conversion. Yeah. It, it's such a great thing to, to see the difference between them. I, I, I hear it all the time, again, in study of, in studies of secularization and, and where religion is going, especially in the United States, they, uh, sociologists always wring their hands over what they call the rise of the nuns, and that's not N-U-N-S, that's N-O-N-E-S, as in terms of those who say no religious affiliation when they're asked on census forms and so on. 
And so we're seeing a, a large drop off, uh, historically speaking, of, of religiosity. But that doesn't necessarily equate to a drop off in spirituality. And the phrase that you often hear, especially among the rising generation, is people saying, well, I'm spiritual, not religious, which, again, is, is distinguishing between religiosity, which is more of uh, our outward involvement in religious practice. Uh, as opposed to our spirituality, which is much more of an inward uh, reaching heavenward uh, and, and the life of the soul rather than simply an outward uh, involvement. <clears throat> and and to me, it's interesting, again, to, to meet those people. And I, I've, there's plenty of those within our church as well. Uh, we might speak more of it as active in the church versus active in the gospel. And I think there are a lot of people who maintain their activity in the church uh, for whatever reason, sometimes that social pressure or what would my family think of me or uh, again, for again, whatever reason that they're, they're maintaining their calling and their commitment to the church, but their activity in the gospel has waned. Uh, and, there's a, and there's the flip side as well. I think they're more rare, but there are those who are still very active in the gospel that for whatever reason are no longer active in the church. I remember at one point, uh, in a previous, where we, when we lived in Tennessee, my wife was the visiting teacher of a sister that never came to church. And the first time she went over to her home, uh, she introduced herself and was invited inside. And there was a picture of the Savior and, in, in her home and a well-worn copy of the end sign uh, on the coffee table. And my wife was just scratching her head going, what? Who are you? <laughs> how, mm. how are you, li- you know, living the gospel so well? And what is it about the church that has turned you away from it? Uh, and so there is that difference. I, I'm a fan of something that Joseph Smith once said. Uh, my, my students always laugh because I bring this up in practically every lesson. But Joseph said that it is by proving contraries that truth is made manifest. And by contraries, we can take a, a gospel paradox, two opposite goods, two truths that seem to be at con- in conflict with one another, but in reality are such a perfect pair uh, where opposites attract in the best imaginable way. So uh, grace and works, for example, or justice and mercy is, is one that we're very used to. And, and I see religiosity and spirituality as a set of contraries by which truth is made manifest. Uh, if you take the, the two great commandments that Jesus told the lawyer about, that the first was to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. That's the spirituality aspect And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. The first is vertical. The second is horizontal. To me, whenever I picture the cross as the, as the, the symbol of Christianity, I see those two great commandments and the first one lifting us heavenward and the second one lifting or extending us outward and be, and the gospel, our spirituality is that vertical component. It's the first great commandment and our religiosity, the church side of things is that horizontal. It's the second great commandment. Now, to, it, the church gives us opportunities to love our neighbor in ways that few other institutions do. And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that. Personally, I'm more of the, the, the first great commandment than the second. And I'm so grateful that the church pulls me out of my, my shell. My, I, I would have been a good monk. Uh, the, the monastery <laughs> calls me at times. Uh, and the church calls me out of the monastery. And I'm so grateful for that. But there are others that are wired in the opposite direction. And 
And the church is such an incredible institution, and it gives us so many opportunities to serve uh, and keeps us so busy uh, for, for, for good and bad, uh, I, I guess. Um, but sometimes we almost fool ourselves into thinking that because I am so actively engaged in, in that, in the religious aspect of things, because I'm so active in church, that that almost compensates for what might end up being a pretty weak life of the soul. Um, it struck me when I was when I was in Tennessee. I would go to my friends' churches as often as I could, and and again live into that holy envy that I have. And I remember one point, I'd been and worshipped with the Catholics and the Methodists and and the Presbyterians, and, and I'd been to the Baha'i faith. And in college, I did a study abroad and just fell in love with with Islam and Judaism and my time in Israel and, and, but I'd never been to a, a Quaker meeting. And so I found that there was a Quaker congregation in, in Nashville and called them and asked if I could come and, and participate in one of their worship services. And, and I went and the, the Quakers, it, it is a, it is a silent worship. It is, it's like the lull in fast and testimony meeting when nobody's getting up and everybody starts to feel uncomfortable, <laughs> but no one feels uncomfortable because that's what sacrament meeting is uh, to use our terminology. And at first I thought, wow, this is going to be a long hour, but it was so profound uh, to the point that I have never again felt uncomfortable during the lulls of our fast and testimony meetings. And it hit me that the, the holiest place in all the restored gospel is also the quietest place, the least active, quote unquote, place. And that's the holy, that's the celestial room in the temple. And to think, and in fact, I've done this with my classes sometimes. I'll write on the board, temple, W-O-R, and then ask them to fill in the blank. And almost invariably, they put it, they, they fill in the blank with a K instead of with an S-H-I-P. And that to me is telling that for us, we think of the temple as temple work and we don't necessarily think of it as temple worship. And we spend an hour and a half to two hours in an endowment session to do temple work. And then we fly through the celestial room and to think, no, 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 no. It took us two hours to, to calm down the mind from racing and to, to slow down the, our thoughts and feelings so that to the point that we could commune with heaven once we enter the celestial room. Everything else was, yes, work and important, but in some ways warm up to higher and, higher and holier things and to be able to connect with heaven there and to develop that vertical connection and, and work on our spirituality and not just our religiosity. The proving of that set of contraries, I think, is, is such an important goal for each of us. And I'm grateful for the structure that my religiosity gives me, that the church gives me. But I'm also grateful for the purpose that my spirituality gives me. Uh, Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor that passed away recently, wrote an, an article that he called, Why I Believe and Why I Belong. That's a great message. Hmm. And I love that he distinguishes those two as well. And the why I believe is the spirituality side. It's the first great commandment side. It's the vertical. And the why I belong is the religiosity side. It's the horizontal, it's the second great commandment. But those two need to come together, as Jesus himself said. And the second, which is like unto it. It's 
So he sees a connection, a parallel between those two great commandments. And we need to see that connection as well. Well, I loved everything you said there. And I love the image or the metaphor that you used of the cross. We do need both. We, we need connection with God and we need the church because we need the ordinances. We need the priesthood. You explained that so well. But to move on, so you are an institute teacher mm-hmm. at the University of Utah. What are some of the most common questions and concerns you hear? And what is the best way to help others who are struggling with questions or perhaps having some doubts? Oh, it's a great question. And I love my students. They're just, it's amazing to see what they're up against uh, in the world that they are growing up into and emerging, emerging into and to, to keep a hand on the iron rod as, the other, as they're being pulled in so many different directions. I, I feel for them. And I'm so grateful anytime they have the courage to come and just want to sit down one-on-one and discuss their questions and their concerns and their doubts if they have them and, and just wrestling with issues. Um, there is a, uh, a course that the Institute pr- program developed about six years ago called Foundations of the Restoration. And the purpose of the course was really to help address some of the more challenging issues in church history, uh, to help the, the rising generation learn to navigate those issues. This is the information age, which also doubles as the misinformation age. And it's so easy to, you know, a, a few keystrokes and, and mouse clicks away from all kinds of uh, misinformation or misinterpretation or misapplication of information. Uh, and it's leading a lot of people uh, away from God and away from the church. And I, I was asked to help write the curriculum for that course. And a lot of it was because of my experience st- studying anti-Mormonism. And, and almost every lesson I could, I could almost see, oh, yep, this is, the, this is the doubt or concern or attack that, we are, uh, that we're trying to help our students navigate in this particular lesson. It, it's, a, it's one of my favorite courses uh, that I've taught at the Institute. And... Much of it also, this was in the same time period that the gospel topics essays were being developed and published. And uh, my, you know, I, I've been able to work with some incredible minds within the church uh, academically uh, and to see those experts around the, around the church and around the world. I, I read those essays and can almost think, yeah, I think I know who wrote this one. And ah, yeah, I bet I know who wrote this one just because there's some incredible people uh, that have paid the price uh, to, to plunder the riches of Egypt uh, and consecrate the gold uh, to build the kingdom. And, and if you were j- even just to read over the, the Gospel Topics essays titles, I think you'd see the short list of what's on a lot of people's minds. And many of them tend to be historical from things like the multiple accounts of the first vision or the translation process of the Book of Mormon or the historicity of the Book of Abraham, uh, things like Mountain Meadows Massacre or the practice of plural marriage uh, in its different manifestations. Uh, there's, there's so many things throughout our history uh, that, that students can trip up against, uh, especially when they're only receiving uh, oh, the perspective of those that, that don't have faith and want to approach those things from a perspective of, of disbelief or, or unbelief. And in all of my study of anti-religious rhetoric, not just anti-Mormonism, I'm amazed at how often it boils down to what I call the three S's. It's sensational, it's superficial, and it's selective. 
And so what we're trying to do in helping teach these uh, youth and young adults is to help them get past the, the sensationalism by approaching these issues from the standpoint of faith, just kind of calm down. It's okay. There are answers. Have faith uh, to combat the superficiality of things, of attacks by viewing them through the lens of the plan of salvation, which again, forces us beyond the superficial into seeing the big picture and where things fit. And then thirdly, to overcome the selectivity of the material uh, that's being, that's being force fed them by teaching them how to seek truth from better sources uh, and expand their understanding in that way. And uh, so we, I see a lot of those things from the historical uh, side of things. Many of them also happen to be more current event types of things. Uh, race is a huge issue in, in our country right now. Uh, and it's a huge issue in the history of the church. And so that, that is something where the past and the present come together to, to lead a lot of young people to, to ask questions. LGBTQ issues are also huge. Uh, we have such a, an empathetic rising generation. They're so wonderful when it comes to acceptance and, and diversity and inclusion, which are, is what, what the Lord wants all of us to develop. And, and I see this as half of the contrary that needs to be proven that they're experts in love and need to be uh, to hold on to that love as they also hold on to the law, to God's law and to, in, to somehow balance diversity and unity and to, to balance individuality and community, uh, to, to balance truth and tolerance and so on. And so to try to help them navigate those kinds of things is, is something that we're, we're trying to do. I, I am amazed as I sit down, I probably spend more time one-on-one -on -one with students in my office than I do in the classroom with large groups uh, because they know I'm open, I'm open to that for them. And, and that's really where the rubber hits the road, where you can get a sense of where the, the individual is coming from and the kind of help that they need. I don't know if you can really help mass groups uh, navigate the stages of faith and grow up in God. It does have to be uh, an, an individualized one-on-one -on -one I mean, the way the Savior ministered to people, one-on-one uh, -on -one primarily. But I'm amazed that in those conversations, what often begins with what seems like a historical or a doctrinal question ends up becoming a personal one by the end of the discussion. Uh, most people simply don't care enough about history or theology to lose sleep over it. If, if it is a purely historical question, my eyes light up because I'm like, wow, you're, you're, you geek out on history as much as I do. Fantastic. Let's dig, <laughs> let's dig into the materials. Um, but for most people, that's not what's on their mind all the time. It's what they're going through. And often what they're experiencing personally has a connection to something that happened in the history of the church. Or sometimes it's big picture things just about God in general. And, and they feel like they're grappling with church issues when in reality they're grappling with God issues. They, they take, back to your earlier question about religiosity and, and spirituality, they're struggling spiritually, but they take it out on religion. The church becomes an, an easy whipping boy in those, in those instances, but often it's because my life isn't going the way that I thought that it would, um, through no fault of their own often, uh, but where is God in all of this? And so to drill down into that, um, again, there's no, I'm amazed at how similar their questions often start 
uh, and yet how unique and individual the conversation ends because it's based on their experience and their perception of those experiences and their understanding of, of where they fit in God's plan and in God's perspective uh, as, they, as they wrestle their way home to him. Well, you had mentioned uh, talking with these students as they're going through these stages of faith. And uh, in a book by former member of the 70 Bruce Hafen and his wife, Marie, mm -hmm. titled Faith is Not Blind, um, they discuss that evolution of faith. They term it going from simplicity to complexity to simplicity after complexity. And I, I read this book by your recommendation. It was amazing. Yeah, so, so <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on this? And how does this perspective help us in our quest for spiritual knowledge? And also as we're trying to help others who are going through those stages of faith. I think even to just recognize that there are stages that there is, and they're different and they each have each stage has its own set of pros and cons. Uh, Elder Hafen has been working on this for essentially for my whole lifetime. Uh, I loved his book, uh, Faith is Not Blind, but the first time he started wrestling with these issues was in 1979 in a talk he gave at BYU called Love is Not Blind. And he wasn't talking about romantic love. He was talking about faith and ambiguity uh, for college students, which was his audience at the time. And so he's been at this for 40 years. Uh, and, and his book, uh, that he and his wife wrote is, is such an expansion. But honestly, I, I often will make the, his original 1979 talk, I, I wish it were required reading for every Latter-day Saint, uh, to be able to see, you know, the way he described it 40 years ago, it, it wasn't, I don't think, I guess he hadn't found the, is it Oliver Wendell Holmes who, who coined the idea of uh, complexity versus simplicity that, that the Hafens uh, build on. I guess he hadn't found that quote in 1979. He's, he's since has kind of used that as his framework. But, but even in the 1979 talk, there is this, this idea of a first stage where there is no ambiguity and then a second stage where it, the only thing that it does exist is ambiguity. And then a third stage where you can recognize ambiguity where it exists and you can be okay with that but you're not trying to force ambiguity into places that actually are clear. I sometimes compare it to the, the iron rod and the liahona. And we learn to follow the iron rod first because it's the simplest and it's the, the least ambiguous. It's, it's hand or hand the rod along, you know, and, and it, we know exactly where it is. It's fixed in the ground and it's not moving. But then we, we get to, there are points in the iron rod or points along the path where it doesn't feel like there is a clear answer to things. And we've moved away from the simplicity where, where everything is very straightforward and, and neat and tidy. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, there's, not, there's no iron rod right here. What's going on? Well, God has not left you directionless. He simply has interrupted the iron rod and placed a liahona at its base. And, and that liahona is the complexity. I mean, there's, there's two spindles, uh, I was always confused by that in the book. Why are there two? And then it says only that one of them points the way to, that you're supposed to go. And I thought, what's the other one doing? And can I tell which one's which? Which one am I supposed to pay attention to? And the words change. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. What is, man, this is a lot harder. And, and I think uh, 
you know, again, progressing through those stages and recognizing I, I, I need to be able to be as equally adept at navigating uh, Liahona principles and times of life as I am navigating iron rod principles and times of life. And, and there are times, again, that the iron rod stops and there's a Liahona at the base and there's times where the Liahona spindles point to where an iron rod picks back up again. And, and again, needing to be able to master both of those means of, of guidance and transportation. What I love about the whole concept is it, as I work with, with individuals that are struggling, is especially if they're really wrestling with their faith and have, are thinking about leaving the church or have left, often there's this sense of, I am completely lost and I'm floating adrift and there's no hope for me. There's almost this, this existential crisis, this angst especially if they've grown up in the church and had a strong testimony. In some ways, the stronger you are in that first simplicity stage, the harder it is to navigate the second stage. Uh, and that's why it's often the people that's, that, when we're shocked by someone who's left the church or who's struggled in their faith, it's often because they were such masters of the iron rod. They were so, they were experts at first stage spirituality. Uh, that it never would have crossed our minds that they would ever struggle or, or leave. And it's simply that what came across perhaps as such strength was instead perhaps a certain level of brittleness in our belief. Uh, it made us so good because we were so committed. It was, uh, there's, there's no black and white anywhere. But as soon as the problem with brittle belief is that as soon as it bumps up against something hard, it tends to shatter instead of to bend and, and to be shaped and molded by, by the Lord that's still present throughout the, complex, the complexity stage. Uh, it's been nice to sit down with people as they're describing it and just to be able to say, oh, okay, I, I see exactly where you are on the path and you're still on the path and that's totally fine. It's okay where you are and you don't have to blame yourself or beat yourself up. And even that can be so reassuring to people I sometimes compare it to someone who feels lost on a hike, and, but they still have cell phone coverage. And so they call you and you know the hike so well that you just ask them, tell me what you see. And as they describe a, a rock formation here or a strangely shaped tree there, you're like, oh, oh yeah. And, and, and if you look to this side, can you see this? And all of a sudden they're like, whoa, you know exactly where I am. You're like, yeah, I do. And that is a tricky part because you're right. It's hard to see the trail, but you're actually on it or you're closer to it than you realize. Let, let me help you get back on it and, and help you move forward. And again, there's just such reassurance there that they haven't blown it, uh, that there's not something wrong with them. And that in many ways, they may actually be progressing uh, from that first stage of simplicity into that second stage of, of complexity. Um, having read Elder Hafen, having read the academic book that explains all of this best is one written by a Methodist uh, so sociologist and, and theologian uh, back in 1981 called Stages of Faith. And that was a great read. Uh, Thomas Worthlin McConkie has written a book more recently called Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis that kind of takes uh, Fowler's Stages of Faith and baptizes it <laughs> into the church to help a Latter-day Saint audience see what those stages might look like. They're all excellent reads. The more I've studied them, the one insight that I feel most grateful for, as I've tried to help translate this into, into my students' vernacular, is that if you look at those three main stages, and some, again, other scholars have a longer list, but all of them seem to boil back down to these same three. 
the more I've wrestled with it and pondered it, I just felt a nudge once to say, this is just creation, fall, atonement. That's all it is. It's just creation, fall, atonement. It's the three pillars of eternity that we are all familiar with. And that first stage of simplicity is simply the Garden of Eden. It's creation and it's beautiful and it's innocent and it's, there's no problems. Um, I mean, the fruit just grows all around you. There's no weeds to pull. It's fantastic. We all need that stability and security to know that we can trust the world that we live in. At a certain point, we outgrow Eden. We weren't meant to stay there. And, and I'm so grateful that the restored gospel gives us, gives us that perspective of a fortunate fall because I'm able to reassure people who feel like they've fallen from their faith and let them know you actually may have just progressed from Eden to east of Eden. And there's some growing pains there. There are weeds to pull. I'm sorry. There is sickness and sin and there's darkness and there's death and there's humanity and there's frailty and there's mistakes. There's messiness now. But there's also a chance to, to keep growing up in God and to, to develop real faith where before we called it faith, but we, we kind of thought it was absolute knowledge. And, and we didn't really have to rely on the Lord. It just all seems so, so perfectly simple. Uh, but my, my advice for them is always, but don't stop here. Uh, it can be a fortunate fall, but East of Eden is no place to, to sink down roots and, and build a place to live. Keep on progressing because the atonement stage is so much higher and holier. Even than Eden, the elevation of Gethsemane is so, so far surpasses the elevation of Eden. It's worth the climb. But there was no way to summit that mountain without first falling through the valley of the shadow of death, or in this case, the shadow of doubt. Uh, with questions and concerns and messiness and so on. And again, this is not just a Latter-day Saint thing. It's not even just a religious thing. The story arc of life always seems to follow creation, fall, atonement. Our marriages follow that, that story arc. And yet if people don't know that there's hope ahead in the fall stage, they get divorced. Uh, life itself follows that story arc. And it's in the fall stage that people commit suicide if they don't know that there's hope and healing ahead. And so I'm grateful for the recognition of the value of each stage. It gives me uh, patience and faith and hope for anybody, no matter where they happen to be in the, in the previous stages. Um, often I've, <laughs> I've had people ask, how do you know when you're in that last stage? And I'll sometimes sm just smile and say, you're not a jerk anymore. <laughs> you're not, you have love and compassion for everybody along the path. And because people in stage one really look down their noses at people at stage two, wondering where is your faith? And people in stage two really look down their noses at back at people at stage one and ask, well, where is your brain? Uh, and, and again, it's proving those contraries of head and heart, uh, proving those contraries of creation and fall. And, and the higher unifying principle that binds them to the both together and allows the pros of one to offset the cons of the other is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, I heard that Eden fall atonement bit on the all in podcast and was just so struck by that analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you are so spot on. I have, I think we all have friends and acquaintances that we know are in that complexity stage helping them reframe 
yeah. that and helping them understand, you know what, this might be your opportunity to develop a deeper, more resilient faith to not shame them and to recognize that it's okay for them to be in, in complexity. But I liked how you said to encourage them that this isn't it. I think one of the hardest things that people deal with when they're in the fall stage is they have not yet ascended to the atonement, but they do remember what life was like in Eden. And, mm -hmm. and there either is a nostalgia for it or a bitterness against it. And often the one turns into the other. You can just see people just wrestling and they, in their best moments, there's again, this nostalgia of, I wish I still felt the way I did on my mission, or I wish I hadn't read that uh, anti-Mormon blog or whatever it, whatever it was, or it doesn't even have to be anti-Mormon. A lot of it is, wow, that's, that is unvarnished history and that's warts mm -hmm. and all stuff. And wow, that really did happen. And that is messy. I don't know how to deal with that. And, and wishing that you could just close off your, your memory and go back and, you know, sneak your way back into Eden and, you know, spit out the fruit that we ate. And yet there's no going back and the Lord wouldn't want us to, that we were never meant to stay in Eden. And, and the harder group are the ones that it's no longer nostalgia. Now it's, it's full on bitterness. And you look back, they look back and, and they feel like the church wasn't being honest with them. Or why didn't they tell me this? They were withholding information. And, and that's honestly not the case. Uh, that's probably a conversation for another day. But to help people see you don't have to stay here. And to, again, to validate what the experiences they've had that have brought them into this fall stage is empowering and it's empathetic and it's compassionate and it's true, honestly. I sense from a lot of people this hand-wringing over the, the critical mass that seems to have, quote-unquote, fallen into stage two and are struggling in their faith and are thinking of leaving the church or have, have left their membership or, or, or their faith. And to me, I, I don't know, I just have, I have faith in God's long game. And I've seen enough of the, the return to faith in that third stage of, of a more sophisticated simplicity, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. a more nuanced faith and knowledge. And, and I just think, man, if, can you imagine that same critical mass getting to that point and how compassionate we would be as a church and how much better we would be at interfaith work and how I, I just, I see good times ahead. I see Zion ahead. And for us to be of one heart and one mind and to truly dwell in righteousness and to have no poor among us. And that's not just economics, but to just help people to, to pick them up where they happen to be and to lead and love them along. I just sense that the Lord is moving us in that direction as a church and, and it has to happen individual by individual. But I, I see nothing but beautiful days ahead. There is a millennium on the horizon, and, and we're in good hands. So I'm curious, many of our listeners may have heard of the term uh, putting things on a shelf. Do you have a shelf, Jared? And how do you personally deal with complexity and questions that don't have clear answers? I do have a shelf. In fact, I have three of them. Uh, which might concern some listeners, like, uh oh, there's more than there's more than I didn't that I didn't realize. Uh, and the and no, I've always loved that analogy that Sister Kimball devised. And 
And it's funny because there's a lot of ex Latter-day Saints that absolutely hate that analogy because they they accuse what they call TBMs, uh, true believing Mormon or true believing member, uh, of sticking their head in the sand and using their shelf as as an excuse not to have to think critically. And anyone who acu- who feels that way doesn't know Sister Kimball. Uh, her maiden name was Irene, after all. And if there was ever a family in the church of critical thinkers, it's been the Irenes. And, uh, but for me, the, the breakthrough that I credit the Spirit for was recognizing that based on the ninth article of faith, there are actually three shelves and not just one. The ninth article of faith speaks of revelation past and revelation present and revelation future. And it's that third area that is the shelf that Sister Kimball was referring to. Uh, and so are there things on my shelf that I don't know, don't understand, don't have a, a clear, easy answer for? Yes, but I don't label them doubts or even concerns. I label them revelations yet to come. And, I, on, and that isn't just a semantic trick to help me feel better about things I'm wrestling with. Uh, I honestly believe that they are things that, that there are great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, not just gospel trivia, not just minutia, great and important things that God has yet to reveal. And honestly, I get excited for that. Uh, I'd love to have a, a fifth year of seminary for the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I would love to <laughs> understand the nature of God far better than I do. I would love to know my mother in heaven. Those are things that are on my shelf that I can hardly wait for God to unpack for me. Um, are, there, are there messier play, things up there about church history or about just how we've navigated things or, or how even things in my own life that I've been through and wondered about. Uh, yeah. And those go on that shelf too. But again, not as a doubt that the shelf is creaking under the load and is threatening me with, with an avalanche. Honestly, it's, wow, those are things that God's going to explain to me someday. I can hardly wait. And what enables me to have that kind of more patient and positive perspective on the third shelf is knowing exactly what's on shelf one and shelf two. And again, it's shelf three in isolation that becomes problematic because then if there's no revelation past or present going on in your life, then you start to lose hope that there's ever going to be revelation to come. And instead of revelation future, it becomes present problem. It becomes uh, a doubt that I just can't deal with. Whereas, and so I've often encouraged my students, Honestly, inventory, shelf number one. What do you have on there? What has God revealed to you in the past? And I almost picture if you were to make a collage or build a literal shelf and put souvenirs there, you know, a page from your patriarchal blessing or a leaf from the sacred grove or a handkerchief from a temple dedication, uh, just a vial of consecrated oil, a, a journal entry of a miracle received or participated in. There is so much. And so when the scriptures speak of remembering President, you know, Sister Kimball's brother, Spencer W., uh, talked about that being the most important word in the language. And so to remember what God has done in our lives, uh, that's shelf number one. And then to have a, a thriving, vibrant shelf number two of what is God revealing to you right now? What experiences have you had in your scripture study? How have you connected with heaven through your prayer? Uh, what, 
opportunities for service have stretched you beyond what you thought was your breaking point. Just what insights into the endowment have you had in the temple, the unlocking the mysteries of the kingdom? There's honestly, of the three shelves, my favorite is shelf number two. I love it. And the more, uh, the more occupied shelf number two is, and the better dusted off and inventoried shelf number one is, shelf, never, shelf three never becomes daunting. Uh, it never creaks under the load. You just get more and more excited to free up space on shelf number two for God to move things down from shelf number three. And life just proceeds in that order. You take what you've learned today and move it down a shelf to shelf number one to free up space for God to bring something down from shelf number three. And line upon line, precept upon precept, shelf by shelf, you come to know God. Uh, the way Alma describes it in chapter 12, of Alma, if your heart is sufficiently soft, you will receive the greater portion of the word until you know the mysteries of God, until you know them in full. And the flip side, unfortunately, is also true, that when our heart hardens through whatever, whatever you know, sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's just hard things, and we, we've, been, we've been broken to the point of not having a broken heart, but of having a hardened one. And, and it's, and the danger of that, as Alma warns, is that those with the hardened heart will, will receive the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning God's mysteries. And so it really is this fluid process of either moving things down the shelves or taking things off of them entirely, allowing shelf one to get so dusty and shelf two to be so vacant that shelf three becomes filled with nothing but what we consider unanswerable questions uh, and causes for concern. And I, I just don't feel that way about the shelves. I'm, I'm grateful for the things God has taught me and the things he's teaching me now. And I have all the faith in the world for the things he will teach me tomorrow. I'm looking forward to waking up and seeing what's, what's on his agenda. So to our listeners, perhaps you are in that stage of complexity. I think that Jared has given us so much to think about. I so appreciate everything you've taught us today. I'm grateful for the, the, for the chance to think about things that matter with people who matter. And so if any of your listeners are among those who are wrestling with difficult things, just please know that my heart goes out to you and that there is, there is hope ahead. There's, that you're not in as bad a place as you might think. And there's nothing wrong with you. And if I could just if we were sitting across the table from each other and just to look in your eyes and, and validate the experiences that you've had and the perceptions of those experiences that we can talk about and, and try to make sense of the path that you're on and what you've been through in life and in hopes of seeing God's hand in it all. Uh, I really do. I believe that. Um, Elder Renland taught an amazing principle several years ago after some time he'd spent in Africa where a, uh, a fellow general authority had talked to him about the, just the, the massive need in that part of the world for assistance economically and so on. And he said, it's interesting uh, phenomenon that the, the farther away we are from the source of the assistance, the more entitled we feel to demand it. Whereas the closer we are to the source of assistance, the less entitled we feel at all. And I remember that really striking me at the time and wondering if there was a, another spiritual parallel to that 
And I found in the lives of many that I've worked with, and, if, and even in my own life as well, that there are times where I feel like I want, that I'm entitled to an answer from God or entitled to an explanation of some difficult thing I've been through personally or that I'm studying in church history. And, and I want to demand that and tell, you know, you have to explain this to me, God. And I found that often I'm making demands and feeling entitled to them because the source of the answers is far away from me. Uh, Job was that way. Uh, Job, I mean, the, the beauty of that book is those middle 39 chapters where he's wrestling with God and, and kind of demanding an explanation and feels like he deserves one. And by the end, God finally says, okay, Job, you want to, you want to go there? You want to take me to court and, and, and sue me for malpractice of how I've been, been treating you in your life? Then let's do this. But I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the witness stand and I'm going to grill you with questions. And for two solid chapters, he just peppers him almost machine gun uh, style with questions that are unanswerable to Job. And by the end, Job waves the white flag in full and beautiful submission and just says, I have spoken words without understanding. Uh, you have, I've, you've shown me things too wonderful to me or too wonderful for me. And what's amazing about that is at the end of the book of Job, he gets all of his blessings back except one. He never gets an explanation. I mean, we've known what's been going on since the beginning of the book, but even by the end, Job has no clue why God put him through all of that. But the beauty of it is he no longer demands an explanation. He no longer feels entitled to it because he's so close to God instead. And, and sometimes I just, I just want people to know how close God is willing to be for them um, and that he's waiting with outstretched arms and, and often when we're making demands of him, it's because we've allowed ourselves to grow distant. And the closer we come to him, there'll be times he, he meets us with an answer and an explanation. And other times he'll visit us with assurances, as the Book of Mormon says. And that that, if Job is any indication, will be sufficient. His grace always is. Well, thank you, Jared. Before I let you go, I have to ask you the last question that we always end with which is why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? I love that question. I, and I love the, the imagery that's behind it uh, of being in the boat in the good ship Zion. When the Lord told the apostles to keep on rowing or at least let them continue to row that night in the fourth watch when he comes and walks on water to get to them, they were still rowing. They were still laboring at the oars and not making much progress. But God doesn't just want us to get to the other shore. He wants us to build some muscles on the way. Uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting that the, those apostles would have to do through life. And, and the miracle that night was not simply that Jesus walked on the water to get to them. And I know he's willing to do that for us as well. But even in the meantime, there is, there is muscle to be made uh, as we continue to row, especially when it's upstream or against the wind, uh, up all the way up to the fourth watch, I'm, gra I'm grateful for the journey. I've, I'm grateful just to be to be part of of people's path 
and and to share some time on the trail together. I don't stay in the boat because I haven't looked at other vessels. <laughs> Again, mm-hmm. I, I've loved my divinity school time. I'm so grateful for the goodness that, that is out there. But I have never seen a ship quite like the good ship Zion. Uh, it's incredible. And I, and I know that the Lord is at the helm. There is a, a phrase that, that Moses uses in Moses chapter one, where he says, I will not cease to call upon God for I have other things to inquire of him. And one reason I just keep on rowing is because I have other things to inquire of him. I'm amazed at what he's taught me thus far. And I look forward to the rest of my life and the rest of eternity to continue. I just want to spend more time in the boat with him because I know, I know he's on board with us. And master carest thou not that we perish is only because we've let him fall asleep in our lives. And if we'll keep him fully awake, I, can you imagine him being on the boat? And all he's asking us to do is row. I'll row as long as, as he'll let me because of the conversation partner I have sitting in the bow. Thank you so much, Jared. I so appreciate your time and testimony tonight. You are a wonderful conversation partner, Tara. I'm grateful for the, the chance that we've had to talk about important things. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Christ underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ SR Podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.